There are 66 houses along the Bishop's Avenue, a winding street north of Hampstead Heath known colloquially as Billionaire's Row, and any one of them will set you back at least £10 million. With its ideal position between the Heath, the City and Highgate Golf Club, you can see how the property bubble started to swell and metastasise here, but at a certain point it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Houses are expensive on the Bishop's Avenue because the Bishop's Avenue is full of expensive houses. And yet, most estimates show that fully three quarters of these houses are completely empty at any time, with around 20 being fully derelict and unfit for human habitation. These are houses as pure status symbol, an address which denotes membership of the global elite with no regard for the actual livability of the house itself. The owners of these huge, rotting Dorian greys are elsewhere, hiding behind layers of tax havens and shell corporations so as to avoid even paying council tax, the map of their money having long since overtaken the terrain, which rots and withers away beneath the weight of it. These houses have been used plenty in the meantime, though. Urban explorers have broken in, squatters have taken over, and illegal raves and punk shows have all taken place on the Bishop's Avenue over the years, right under the noses of the billionaire psychopaths who own them. These incursions have consistently found one thing in common. All of the empty houses have some type of on-site electricity generation, normally a small radioisotope reactor designed to run indefinitely, which continues to push out a significant amount of power, even when nobody is on-site. The DJs love this, of course, since it gives them a convenient spot to plug in their sound systems, but curious explorers have tried to follow the output cables and found them disappearing into mounds of earth or below the floor in parts of the house with no obvious basement entrance. Beneath each of these dilapidated mansions lies something huge and hidden. Whatever it is has been steadily consuming power for years, and squatters who have spent a lot of time there report that in the night, when the music stops and it's all silent outside, they can sometimes hear muffled screams coming from somewhere far below. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. say that money talks and wealth whispers, but if you've ever been unfortunate enough to sit near a group of the super wealthy in a restaurant, you know that true wealth, the billionaire oil magnets, the finance CEOs, the PR company jackals, doesn't even have an internal noise meter. They whinny and scream like feral hogs, ordering the most expensive liquor on the menu before throwing it down their throats and drunk driving their Maseratis back to Kensington or Finchley. It's not the bad manners I object to, really. It's not like a polite billionaire is any better, but Christ, do they ever make it easy to detest them. The type of wealth which owns property in the Bishop's Avenue is exactly this type of over-the-top gauche. There are all sorts of architectural styles visible from the road, but most of it falls into a sort of country house slash plantation chic, with tall white columns framing most of the doors and an ugly symmetry in balconies and bay windows. After all, if you've got £25 million to buy a mansion that will sit empty for 99% of the time, you've probably got another £25 million to knock it down and rebuild it to your exact lack of taste. And hell, if you've got £25 million to build yourself the perfect monstrosity, 
You've probably got £30 million lying around to invest in all the accoutrement of modern luxury living. And that means getting a super basement installed beneath it. Super basements first emerged in the wealthy London suburbs of Knightsbridge and Kensington, another billionaire enclave where a Victorian corner terrace within walking distance of Harrods and Hyde Park can easily set you back £30 million. Unlike the leafy streets around the Bishop's Avenue, this part of the city is heavily built up and therefore subject to strict planning consents, which prevent you from simply knocking down your house and building a new one. You're not allowed, in most cases, to modify the visible structure of the building so as to preserve the historic character of the neighbourhood, which is, in fairness, mostly code for the property values of your neighbours. This means that those who want free reign to expand on their space have only one direction to go. Down. Beneath most of these billionaire plots, which are already five or six storeys high, you can normally find five or six further storeys of basement space, including swimming pools, display garages for luxury sports cars, home cinemas, industrial kitchens, health spas, and, invariably, servants' quarters. They will usually extend beyond the footprint of the house itself and beneath the garden in the back, with tactical use of skylights and mirrors to funnel sunshine several floors beneath the earth. Specialist architectural firms have been leveraging this trend since the 70s. After all, a well-constructed basement could easily double or even triple the floor space of a property, which is already worth eight figures on the open market. Luxury design combined with the unique technical challenges of building beneath an existing structure will cost a budding socialite millions of pounds, but who could say no to a spa day without having to leave the house? Incidentally, Kensington is also home to Grenfell Tower, the 24-storey residential block which caught fire due to government cuts and institutional neglect in 2017. A significant contributor to the fire was the installation of decorative cladding on the outside as part of a 2012 renovation, so as to make it more visually appealing for the wealthy local community to look at. This cladding caught fire at high speed and spread straight up the outside of the building, filling the flats with smoke before firefighters could get in. It would have cost £5,000 extra to ensure the cladding was fireproofed. 72 people were killed largely from migrant and low-income communities, and the smoke was visible all over London. This is a horror podcast, but some horrors need no embellishment. Reinvoicing centres are a vital part of modern imperial capitalism. If you want to import a million pounds worth of goods, but you don't want to pay taxes at each end, you're probably looking for a reinvoicing centre. Essentially, it's a shipyard in a convenient tax haven, through which you move products and materials from the global south, destined for the global north, stopping just long enough to change the declared value on the packages. 
Doing it this way allows a corporation to declare the value very low as it leaves the country, avoiding export and purchase taxes, but then set the price very high as you sell it internally within the company, making your profit appear much lower than it really is for the purpose of corporate taxes. This can work a couple of different ways, of course, but fundamentally, these reinvoicing centers are the beating heart of tax avoidance for global corporations. They're also completely legal, according to most tax codes. After all, those tax codes were normally written and implemented by politicians who get most of their money from global capital. Wherever you find a reinvoicing center, you'll also find dozens of ghost businesses, shell companies designed to help facilitate the daisy-chaining of tax responsibility and to hide the real people who profit from it. Again, all completely legal. In the wake of the Panama Papers exposing many of those implicated in this sort of scheme, the only person who got meaningfully punished was Daphne Caruana Galizia, apologies if I stumbled on the name there, the journalist who leaked the information, and who was assassinated in a car bombing in October 2017. The only other consequence was a vast amount of dark money being pushed into the 2016 Brexit campaign, since the EU were trying to implement rules which would make it harder to hide money like this, and, well, we all know how that went. How is this relevant to Kensington and the Bishop's Avenue? Apart from the obvious fact that many of those who live there were implicated in this sort of global financial crime, and I use crime there in the moral sense of the word rather than the legal one, obviously, it's also how so many of the houses came to be dilapidated. For purposes of tax avoidance and anonymity, most of these mansions are registered to shell companies in tax havens, held in arm's length trusts or hidden away on balance books with no connection to their actual owners. They can't be repossessed or sold on because nobody actually knows who owns them and the actual owners for sure aren't showing themselves. That said, Material things aren't all that can be switched in the shuffle of global capital. How much do you think your identity is worth? Word is that in certain parts of East London, you can buy a death certificate and a completely new identity for under £500. Of course, the super-rich would never settle for such a tawdry identity as the kind you could get for £500. They still want to live the privileged lifestyle, just with a different passport, so as to get away from any potential legal consequences for their actions. Figures show that Oxford University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, is 60% populated by students from private or grammar schools. Of their entire student body, only 1 in 10 consider themselves working class, and that's bad news for them. Working class students are twice as likely to drop out of university on average, and that effect is compounded by Oxford's viciously privileged class culture, full of fancy balls and private clubs which require expensive membership fees and costumes. The most famous of these is the Bullingdon Club, which counts among its former members David Cameron and Boris Johnson, and whose initiation rituals are rumoured to include burning a £100 note in front of a homeless person. Anyone from a normal background who can survive that culture is likely to come out the other end feeling lonely, angry, and ready to leave the country immediately. If you were a working-class student who graduated from Oxford without any of the prospects of your wealthy peers, facing student debt and crushing alienation, and somebody offered you £100,000 for your identity, passport, 
national insurance number, the lot. Would you take it? What about £200,000? The sort of money which is pocket change for the billionaire set could set you up with a whole new life in a different country, could save you from grinding poverty in the way you hoped your perfect A-level results and your access to the hallways of power would. £500,000 in untraceable cash to disappear completely beneath the waves of international finance? Who could say no to that? Wealth doesn't whisper, it bulldozes. This is why so many of the houses on the Bishop's Avenue are able to rot away so completely. Their owners have rebadged and rebranded, changed their names and their identities, shifted from shell company to shell identity to shell life so many times that they're impossible to pin down. They fly private jets from secret airports, they hold passports for every country, they accumulate identities like sports cars, and Sometimes, they vanish. The idea of populating a distant planet is a consistent fantasy of the super-rich, especially as Earth drastically changes due to human-led climate change. Rather than sacrifice a tiny percentage of their obscene wealth to help achieve a more equitable system that won't boil us all alive, they dream of far-flung planets to repopulate, to start over, to go galt and abandon all obligation to their fellow man. Frustratingly, it might even happen within our lifetime. We could fly that far with present-day technology, and we could probably survive upon arrival, technically, albeit at a much lower level of luxury than these vultures are used to. The biggest issue, in reality, is getting there. Let's say we found the perfect planet, ideally suited for human life, but it would take a hundred years on a spaceship to get there. By average human lifespan, that would mean those who got on the ship will not be the same people who get off at the other end. They would have to give birth and raise kids on the journey. Even if you recruit young, that would mean a whole generation who would live and die on a spaceship likely never seeing their destination, or only glimpsing it in their very twilight years. This is what's referred to, in science fiction, as a doomed generation. A group whose lives are given entirely in service to a mission whose spoils they will never see. Trying to solve the doomed generation problem has been a preoccupation for the rich for many years now. This has led to the development of life-extending technologies designed to help combat the need for a doomed generation. These, however, have their own issues. The most promising is a particular type of neurotoxic gas called DeLorean, which has been shown to alter the brain's perception of time, allowing for the slowing of heartbeats and an artificial coma-like state to be induced. When tested on mice and rats, it allowed the extension of their life almost twice over, the major issue, however, is that the coma-like state it induces is closer to locked-in syndrome than a full coma, in that the animal remains entirely conscious and aware of its surroundings the entire time, and apparently in severe, unmitigable pain. Brain scans of animals who have been used for testing show their pain centers glowing screamingly bright throughout the entire process, and any pain medication used to mitigate this has interfered with the drug causing the immediate death of the subject. 
The only part of your body which appears to remain active is the vocal cords, although you have no control over your mouth and tongue, so it would be impossible to communicate meaningfully. I watched videos of Delorum laboratory testing in preparation for this episode, and I, I truly wish I hadn't. In particular, the grainy footage of a pig tied to a stretcher, screaming emptily in a surprisingly human octave at a room full of scientists taking notes will haunt my dreams for the rest of my life. Revival after the administration of Delorum is a long process, requiring a gradual weaning off which can take months or even years, lest they fall victim to a particularly pernicious version of the bends. Delorum bonds with the same part of your blood that oxygen does, and as your body adjusts to it, your blood pressure sinks dangerously low, meaning that anyone who submits to Delorum to artificially extend their life needs to be depressurized like a diver who's risen too fast from beneath the ocean. This means that if Delorum was used in the context of an underground bunker to survive a major disaster, the vault would have to run automatically and remain closed and hidden in order to protect its inhabitants during the revival period. There are no records of Delorum being tested on humans, but there are records of it being produced and ordered in vast quantities by various shell companies registered in tax havens worldwide. Theoretically speaking, someone who had adjusted to become Delorum reliant could extend their life up to 150 years, but they'd be in unfathomable pain the entire time. It's the type of life raft which you'd only throw yourself on if you were certain the world was ending, or if you believed that your survival was more important to the human race than anything else. Around 70,000 years ago, scientists have identified what's called a genetic bottleneck in human history. Some great catastrophe, likely a volcanic eruption, although we can't be certain, reduced the human population to around 10,000 surviving individuals. Almost every person alive today can trace their ancestry to one of around 1,000 couples who survived the event, who went on to repopulate the Earth afterwards. We're currently hurtling towards a similar catastrophe in the form of global climate change, but it's entirely man-made, and the survivors are likely to be the same people who caused it to happen in the first place. Let's call the billionaire fantasy of leaving Earth what it is, a eugenics project. If you're wealthy enough to afford to segregate yourself away from the consequences of climate disaster, you're almost invariably making your money by accelerating climate change in one form or another, by oil or by reckless overproduction or by war or by some other plunder of the world's resources. You're constructing an ark with one hand while flooding the earth with the other. It's a fantasy of deciding who lives and who dies, coupled with a steadfast belief in your own importance. This is not about the potentially admirable goal of ensuring the survival of the human race. This is about engineering the deaths of those you see as less important than you. In episode 1, I talked about Russell Wheeler, the livery master for the Guild of Subterraneans. When the Gate Tunnel was built in 1928, he was in his early 30s, having inherited the title from his father. He resigned the Subterraneans in 1975 as a colossally wealthy man 
and bought himself a house on the Bishop's Avenue. It's still there today, although empty, a gaudy Tudor Revival cottage mansion, perfectly mixing a quaint sense of Englishness with 15 bedrooms and three swimming pools. Unlike my great-uncle Jason, Russell Wheeler never developed an aversion to the underground. Quite the opposite, in fact. His retirement from the subterraneans was part-funded by his side business, designing super-basements around the city. He was the vanguard of the trend, using his knowledge of tunnelling the Allgate Cavern to create the first of the true super-basements beneath the city, over near Kensington Station. Great-uncle Jason was an investor in his company, Subterranean Luxury Limited, which quickly began hollowing out the space beneath the West End. Subterranean Luxury Limited didn't just sell hidden pools and underground garages. In the 70s and 80s, Britain was just as embroiled in the Cold War as any other American puppet state, and with the increase in trade union activity, the wealthy were horrified by the twin prospects of nuclear war and proletarian revolution. Not a lot has changed really, except you can now replace nuclear war with climate change and proletarian revolution with the Labour Party increasing the marginal tax rate slightly, but I digress. If you look through the planning papers for the Bishop's Avenue for this period, there was a flurry of activity beneath the existing structures. Unlike Kensington and Knightsbridge, there's no pressing need to build downwards in this part of town. Most of the properties have ample surrounding space for extensions and alterations, and yet vast amounts of soil and dirt were being torn out from beneath Hampstead. The plans are vague, presumably some money changed hands to keep it quiet, but the local papers were paying attention. It was discovered by an intrepid journalist that a rash of luxury survival bunkers had been installed beneath the road, mostly built by Russell Wheeler's company to the exacting specifications of the idle rich. They went to him because he could design a self-sustaining environment which met their desires for luxury living, and which solved some of the problems associated with it. The design of these bunkers is relatively consistent. They're designed to be a one-way survival arc, hermetically sealed and run on recycled air for up to 200 years. The entrances are entirely hidden underground and covered over when they're entered, designed with the sort of paranoia that comes with extreme wealth. Communication is set to send only, so as to protect their internal systems from cyber intrusion or, more importantly, social engineering. The exit is normally rigged with low-yield explosives designed to completely clear the way upon leaving, a strength and a weakness of the design. It means that, once you're in, you're in for good, with no turning back or communication with the outside world until the sensors indicate it's safe to return. Normally, a large shipment of Delorum is involved in the construction process, but obviously that's included as a last resort. The biggest structural weakness is that the power generators need to remain above ground, since they produce significant exhaust fumes. In case of an emergency, which might knock out this power source, the bunker will switch to low consumption battery power, and those within will be forced into Delorum beds, which can sustain them for up to 100 years. This can also be triggered manually if the sensors above show certain conditions. In particular, long-term heat damage which would be indicative of recurring firestorms or long-lasting sub-zero temperatures suggesting inhospitable climate change. 
These bunkers are so well hidden that unless you know they're there, you'd never notice them. Combine that with an aggressive approach to privacy that many of the residents on the Bishop's Avenue already take, and you certainly wouldn't notice if a family disappeared into one of them, say on Black Monday in 1987 or when Blair was elected in 1997, or on 11th September 2001, or during the financial crash in 2008, or during the London riots in 2011, just for example. The owners don't show up on any census, are invisible to global finance, and have long wanted to be free of any obligation to their fellow man. When they disappeared beneath the earth, they made a choice to leave us all behind to what they were sure was certain death. Marx said that capitalism contains the seeds of its own destruction. He probably didn't envision the bourgeois literally planting themselves beneath the ground to avoid consequences for their actions, but luckily he did have a good prescription for what the workers of the world should do to keep them there. Last week, I broke into five houses along the Bishop's Avenue with a friend of mine. She's been squatting for years, and she knows her way around these places, even as government regulation tightens the noose on the unhoused. She showed me how to get around the increasingly hostile architecture which protects the properties, security fencing, the anti-climb paint, the trip lines and the motion-activated floodlights, all designed to stop anyone from trying to live in these rotten, empty mansions. Together, we went from house to house, looking for the generators which power the vast, underground survival shelters of the billionaires. We followed the lines from there to the sensor array on the roof, where she hoisted me up to take a look at the rig she prepared. It's simple, low-tech, well hidden enough to avoid detection by the security teams. Around the temperature sensor was wrapped a heating blanket, powered by a little solar panel rig, designed to heat it to around 27 degrees Celsius in all seasons. Hot, but not unsurvivable. Next to it, there was a small Arduino board, plugged into where the wind sensor used to be. She explained to me that this would be broadcasting a simple Morse code SOS signal into the bunker, a straightforward analog message asking for help from those within. She visits all these houses once every few months to ensure it's all still working as planned. We could just cut the power, of course, but that seems a little draconian. I'm not looking to force the decision for them. We're sending them a message, giving them a choice. The world is hurting, and people are suffering, and you have the means to stop it. The hidden billionaires believe they're watching the world burn, and they're choosing not to help. It's not so different from what they were doing anyway, but now perhaps with a little more urgency. In the years since my friend set up this little prisoner's game, not a single bunker inhabitant has re-emerged. They believe we are dying, and they're letting it happen. In fact, monitoring the power output of the generators beneath, most of them have radically dropped over the past few years. 
indicating a manual switch over to battery power and the Delorean beds. The invisible rich are sealed in down there, endlessly suffering in a hell of their own creation. If that's what they want, if that's what they choose, rather than share the life raft or stop the flood, I say we let them fucking burn. In the next episode of Subterraneans, I return to the Allgate Cavern to try and connect it to the rest of the hidden city. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. And if you could share to any social media you have, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.